This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Today is June the 9th. My name is John Dunn. Thank you for listening to the Best Friends Podcast. If this is not your first episode, then you know by now how important data is to our work, not just to Best Friends, but for every shelter and rescue organization. It's hard to know how well you're doing at something if you're not actually tracking it, right? So several years ago, Best Friends set out to compile the most comprehensive data set in the history of animal welfare. The more we know, the better informed our decision-making can be. And that data is something we compile each year and we share it with the world. It's becoming something of a tradition here on the podcast to have this data set release episode each year. So once again, we welcome back the Senior Director of Life-Saving Programs for Best Friends, Brent Tolner, to give us the numbers in the 2021 data set and talk about what it all means now and into the future. Well, a lot to talk about, Brent, but I just want to point out that right before I jumped on this call with you, it occurred to me that this is the third year that here on the Best Friends podcast, we've done one of these annual data set episodes. Uh, This is episode 114 of the podcast, which is just incredible. But as far as the data for folks who maybe are not as familiar with the data set, uh, really just for all of us, a refresher on it. Whose data is it? Where is it from? How do we get it? That effort? What is this data set all about? Yeah, so this is the Best Friends annual data set. So we do publish this every year, generally in May or June, with all of the previous year's data. And what we try to do is maximize the amount of information that we can get from as many brick-and-mortar facilities as we can across the country. We think that there are, or, or we have identified about 4,000, a little over 4,000 shelters, brick-and-mortar shelters. Of those, we have data for 80% of the the number of shelters that are out there. We have 171 shelters that we were able to collect data for for the first time that were added into this data set. Then we think, based on some estimations for the ones that we don't have data for, that we ha- we are accounting for about 94% of the animals that enter our, the shelter systems across the country. And so it's a really extensive data collection project uh, that our, our data team goes through. It includes getting information through our coalition members with Shelter Animals Count. It includes many of our network partners who submit data directly to us. And it also includes a lot of information that we get from uh, Freedom of Information Act requests that we send directly to municipal governments to get that data. Again, just to provide the most comprehensive data collection set Uh, of over 3,000 brick-and-mortar shelters across the country. So all of this data, everything we're talking about today, can be viewed and digested on the Pet Life-Saving Dashboard. Well, not today. Today, we're recording this on June 2nd. This is next week's episode. So today, June 9th, you can see this on the dashboard right now. Yeah, so uh, all that information has been updated on the Pet Life-Saving Dashboard. So you can go into your own state, your own community, your own county, identify the shelters uh, in those areas, and then see how each of them are doing and, and stacking up and who who is doing great, who could use some additional help and support. Uh, and we encourage everybody to go to the Pet Life Saving Dashboard and, and get a better understanding of what's happening in your backyard, in your community, in your states. As always, links to lots of things on the website, including to the dashboard, you can access via the link in the show notes, or you can go to bestfriends.org slash podcast. Well, without any delay, Brent, any further delay, let's hear that top level number. How did we do on saving pets in 2021? So I think 
the big story this year is that for the first time since we've been doing the the data project uh, starting back to 2016, we did see an increase in the number of animals that were killed in shelters. This is really largely driven by the fact that we saw a sharp increase in the number of animals coming into shelters. So intake nationally was up about 8.1%. That's not a terribly surprising number. I think everybody knew that 2020 with the pandemic and shelters being closed and and really limiting intake necessarily so because of all the, the challenges around the early days of the pandemic, uh, that we know knew those numbers in 2020 were artificially low. Uh, in fact, 2020 numbers, we were 20% below where we were in 2019. So this 8.1% increase in intake isn't really a surprise. I think we knew that was coming. In fact, I probably would have guessed it would have gone up even more sharply. But because of that sharp increase in animals coming in, we did see an increase in the number of animals that were killed, but moderately so. So uh, we're up to about 355,000 animals that were killed in shelters. This is up from 347,000 uh, the year before. So it's a jump of about 8,000 animals, which fortunately is not as bad as it probably could have been with such a, a sharp increase in intake. Yeah, I've been thinking about the history of this. And you know, you said it's the first time since we've been doing our own data collection effort that the overall number has gone up. And I think if you think about the history of the movement, this may be the first time in a very long time since I started 15 years ago before that, you know, we didn't have the data then, but we know there was this huge acceleration of life-saving. New programs are being developed and deployed, but you get to a point where, and we, we see this in individual communities, the closer you get to that 90% save rate, you know, as uh, Rich Avanzino, Maddie's fund, he used to say, you know, you're already saving the cute and cuddlies, right? Uh, so that shelter population is more challenging in terms of health and behavior. So I suppose... I always assumed that this number, that number, that we'd see a a sort of plateau, even if we forget about COVID and everything that's happened in the last couple of years. I'm not sure that for me personally, I would be have been surprised to see this in the 2021 data set. Maybe surprise it happened in 2021 and not 2023 or 24. But I suppose that's just a testament to the growth in life saving efforts over the last like 10 years or so. You know, I think there's some of that, John. if you look even back to when we started collecting the data back in 2016, you know, we saw a 70% national save rate for animals. That was 83% last year, which is basically the same save rate as it was in, in 2020. It just carried over uh, year over year. So, you know, that's a dramatic improvement in a very short amount of time. And so you're right, as you get closer to that national 90% number, I I do think some of those animals get increasingly more challenging to save. And so I think maybe a slowing, plateau may not be the right word, but maybe a slowing of the life-saving progress was expected, uh, almost in an S-curve sort of way. But certainly this is, I think the pandemic added an in- incremental layer on top of that. If you really look at what happened last year, you know, it was the increase in intake was one part of it. But when we saw the increase in intake go up 8.1%, and then for dogs, the intake was up 7.9%, but adoptions only grew 29 So what we saw was that big gap between what we saw the rising in intake, but adoptions didn't rebound back at the same rate. And so what we gradually saw, particularly on the dog side of things, cats were a little bit closer together. We saw shelters began to fill back up 
because they were working at about half capacity. Finally got full. They still weren't able to make the progress. And then we started seeing some of that, unfortunately, decrease in life-saving at the, the tail end of last year uh, as shelters began to get full. Well, it's a lot of numbers. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. It's just the nature of the beast, isn't it? Uh, Again, links with this information in a much easier to digest version in the show notes area of your podcast player. I just want to go back to something you said that intake, intake went up 8.1%. Correct. But the number of dogs and cats that lost their lives increased by 2.3%. Correct. Yes. So just to reiterate there, that's showing that life-saving is growing, we're saving more pets than ever before. It's just that we're not keeping up with the increase that we're seeing in intake. Yeah, as a movement, we couldn't. And But I think it's a important sign of like just how much work people are doing and the, the shelters, people that work in shelters are doing to try to increase the amount of animals that they're saving. I think if we had seen something like this happen five, eight years ago, the increase in intake and the increase in number of animals killed would have been really closely mirroring each other. And that's not the case now. It's because ever there's more of a commitment uh, across the entire industry to continue to do right by these animals and try to save their lives. And it's coming at, you know, a lot of work and a lot of headache and heartache for a lot of the, the shelter staff folks that are out there. But there is a big commitment to all of this. And I think that that is a positive sign for the industry that, there is that commitment to this this life-saving effort. Yeah, I mean, you could, if you want to think of it that way, in terms of what might have happened a few years ago, I think we'd be in a much worse place. So many more communities were not in a position to be able to manage what they were doing on a day-to-day basis. So imagine if you added the pandemic and all of these other things into the mix 10 years ago. So I suppose, thank goodness, things progressed to where they were prior to the pandemic. Otherwise, you know, who would have known, Right. So it really is overall good news, I think, to come out of the last two years to where we are now. Yeah, I mean, there's there are so many great people that are doing so much great work. And out of that has just become more innovation, new ideas, ways of fixing problems, uh, because you have more people problem solving around it. And I think we're doing a better job of, as an industry, of disseminating that information so we can learn from each other quickly, almost in real time right now, as we try to problem solve really what problems that are brand new to all of us in this industry. Well, so COVID again, with intake up that much, I think that's going to be a question people have, Brent, the COVID effect, you know, all the animals that went out into homes in 2020, how much do we know any of the reasons behind this, the impact in particular that COVID had on the numbers and, and the economy, which I think is probably going to be the headline story for the 2022 data set when we're talking about this in 2023, uh, that would be my guess. But do we really have any sense of how, you know, how much some of these external factors affected all of this? So I think you bring up a good point on the rise in intake because there has been some media stories out there about the pandemic puppies returning and that sort of thing. We're not really seeing that. We're not really seeing the sharp increase in like returned adoptions or returned pets. What we're really seeing is almost kind of that return to normal. You know, we had such a dramatic drop in 2020 because shelters were closed. And this is just reverting back to what would have been more of a normal cycle for it. And so it really is more animals coming in through field services. It's more animals coming in through kind of the Good Samaritan relinquishments, stray relinquishments. And then also, obviously, owner surrender is always a part of that, but it's not 
growing at an incremental pace as, as to the other things. So I really don't think there's any merit to the pandemic puppy crisis that was out in the media for last year. I just do think this is more of a return to normalcy. Uh, I think where you are starting to see some of the impacts of the pandemic is around that adoptions front. When we look at some of the decrease in adoptions, that's where some of the economic uh, and it may be inflationary indicators have really jumped in. So in the research that we did a couple of months ago, there are really two big buckets that jumped out that rose to the top for reasons why people had delayed adopting a pet or had put it off altogether. Uh, They really fell into two buckets. One was having a difficult time finding the right match for their family. And I think that's something as a shelter industry that we can do a better job of helping facilitate finding the right personality match for individuals who are looking to adopt, uh, helping them look beyond maybe potentially breed or size to look for different personality traits. And we know the animals that are in our shelters or rescues as well as anyone. And so being able to help facilitate those matches, I think will be valuable to us. The second one is more along that inflationary area. So indications such as their housing situation. So maybe their rental restrict they have rental restrictions of what type of pets they can have. Obviously with the price of housing and rental properties right now, finding pet friendly housing is more restrictive economically than it's really been in a long time. And so that rose to the top as well as just the general cost of owning a pet. And so I think we're starting to see some of the inflationary measures creep into some of people's decision makings on why they would choose to delay adoption or not adopt at all right now. I do feel like for so many years, Brent, the proverbial ball has been in our court as a movement. You know, if there's a a shelter community, you're at 50% save rate, you want to change that, great. Here's some programs that can help you. Here's, we'll help you get there. But there are so many external factors now that a lot of communities, even some of the best performing communities in the country are really struggling because of things that there's nothing they can do about, such as the economy. There are some things that we can do, like, you know, if somebody's struggling to keep their pet because they need food or basic veterinary care, sure, we can and should address those things. But what we can't do is, say, get into the housing business to create affordable pet-friendly housing. And yeah, these are not new issues, but it really does feel like a lot of the pressures we're seeing on our movement are just things so far beyond our control. It does, but I think it's also important to note, like, while we don't necessarily have the research, a lot of research to back it up, we've known that this housing piece and the ability for people to own pets and rental properties has been an issue for a long time. And maybe it's a little bit higher now with the economy, but I think it's really important for us as an industry to not get bogged down in the things that we can't control of it and really focus on the things that we can and get back to, I think, doing some of the things that we know were successful before the pandemic hit. You know, I think we know large scale super or mega adoption events work, uh, but we haven't been able to do a lot of those because we've been in a pandemic and we don't want to fill our shelters with people. Shelters have been short staffed, so they haven't even had the ability to execute once they were able to open up. But we know we can move volumes of animals with those types of programs, with discounted adoptions. And I think if we can really focus on the things that we know help animals and help move large quantities of animals out of our shelters and into homes, 
I think it's really important for us to, to really focus on those things that we can control because you're right. There's some things we can't, but it's easy. If you get your, let yourself get bogged down in the things that you can't control, you'll feel helpless and hopeless. And I don't think that's the situation that we're in. There are a lot of bright spots in the data set. So I don't want to get bogged down in the negative stuff, but I do think the housing crisis is going to continue to worsen in my opinion. Uh, you know, try to find any housing pet friendly or otherwise, if you've been evicted, and, you know, for pet owners who are already struggling, the rental aid programs are coming to an end, uh, and they already have ended in a lot of places. Of course, we have inflation. So, you know, again, if we were going to try to guess about what next year is going to uh, look like, I think this type of stuff is going to be it. Yeah, I, I think if we look into the future, I think a lot of the things that we saw in 2021, we're seeing continue into 2022. So we're still seeing the gradual return to normalcy with increasing in intake. Uh, I think we'll see that continue to go up this year. Uh, but we're also, again, we're still seeing a little bit of that slog in adoptions. And it's kind of backlogging a lot of shelters. A lot of shelters that are operating right now at 120, 150% capacity, which is you know, it's hard. It's tough work for all of them. And, you know, I think that that is going to continue to be a story for it unless we can kind of reverse some of this adoption trend. Let's talk about the different species data. We only track dogs and cats, right? Correct. We only focus on dogs and cats right now. Okay. So for dogs and cats, what is the data showing us? Yeah. So we focus a lot on dogs because I think the dogs are where the um, highest increase in intake was uh, compared to the adoptions. Uh, but when we look at the number of animals that are unnecessarily losing their lives in shelters, it's still two to one for cats. So 68% of the animals that are unnecessarily dying in shelters are cats. The remaining 32% are dogs. So we do know that there's still a lot more work to do on on the cat front and on cat programming, uh, particularly as it relates to community cats. Uh, and, and neonates who tend to be the most at risk at shelters. It's disappointing for cats, I think, not to see more progress. Brent, I'll be honest with you. You know, the first time you and I did this data set episode in June of 2020, it would have been, uh, the numbers were essentially the same. And considering how much we talk about cats, how many communities have embraced community cat programs over the last just two years, it's hard for me not to be a little bit frustrated when I see this number be essentially static. I almost would look at it a different way. Like I think we're seeing so much progress on the dog front that sometimes it should, we're just not making the progress as quickly maybe on the cat front, but it's not regressing. We are making progress there. It just maybe not at the same pace. I think it's also important to note that from an intake perspective, last year was nearly a 50-50 split between dogs and cats coming into shelters. Uh, there are still a few more dogs coming into shelters than cats, but we've always been as an industry very heavily focused on dogs it used to be you know almost 60 40 in terms of the number of dogs versus cats coming into shelters now it's close to 50 50 if i were to predict i think this year will be the year that cats surpass dogs in the number that come into shelters and i think that has more to do with fewer dogs coming in as opposed to more cats coming in and so you know it just shows again how much progress we're making for dogs and we're just not quite making the progress as quickly with cats and i think it's sometimes 
harder for us to make that type of progress around, especially community cats, because they're not necessarily owned or there's not a, a traditional owner in that sense. So I don't know that they're always viewed in the same way by members of the community. And that's disappointing. And we've got a, we do have a lot of work to do to help change the mindsets of what a home can look like for a community cat. On the dog front, been a number of years now where we're recognizing that, you know, as I said earlier, when a community saves more lives, the shelter population shifts, you're saving more challenging animals, special needs, and dogs, particularly big dogs, medical challenges, behavioral challenges. It does seem like more and more, at least anecdotally, seeing communities put their hands up and say, we don't know how to save this many challenging dogs. We know how to save some challenging dogs. We don't know how to save this many challenging dogs. So I don't know if there's anything in the data that can show us what's happening there. Yeah, I think, well, we don't have a a lot of the data to back that up because we just don't have that level of detail and animal level data. What we know through anecdote and through working with our partners and through the data that we have is there is some truth to what you're talking about. I think particularly with behaviorally challenged animals, uh, behaviorally challenged dogs, there wasn't the expectation five, eight years ago that some of these behaviors would be treatable or the expectation was to treat them or to rehabilitate them. And now that we have that expectation, I think shelters are seeing, yes, I can have the opportunity to work with this dog that may, like we, I think we can all agree that not every dog needs to be a dog park dog, but then like what level of being selective around other dogs is tolerable. And I think everybody has a little bit of a different line on on some of that. But it also limits the volume of homes that are available to some of those dogs. You know, it's because not everybody's in the market for a dog that can't maybe get along with every other dog that it meets. And I think one of the challenges that we've found is that we know that these animals deserve good homes, that they can fit very well in really good homes. There just may be fewer homes available for them. And I don't know that we've necessarily found a great way in mass to market them in a way that we can help connect the right homes with those right pets. And, and, and there you go. They end up kind of ending up filling up shelters to a degree uh, because they, they don't move through the system as quickly as maybe other animals uh, that come through the shelters do. Well, we talk about the veterinary shortage, but there really is a very real shortage of dog trainers. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, especially competent trainers who are willing to work with shelters and pet adopters, which as we know, isn't always the most lucrative path. The shelter environments aren't necessarily the best environment to try to train dogs in. It's such an such an unusual environment for a dog to be in, being surrounded by other dogs in a shelter environment. Like if you can just remove them from that environment, a lot of those behaviors go away. But sometimes it's hard for a shelter to remove them from that environment based on the behaviors they see and feel comfortable doing it. And so, um, yeah, I absolutely think that both the environment that shelters create and the lack of there being enough dog trainers out there is is definitely a a factor for it. Let's get into the geographic data. This is something we track very closely. A lot of positives here. Can you explain why we look at this geographically in this way? Uh, It's probably obvious, but worth making sure everyone's clear on that. And then give me the high level in terms of the different areas of the country. Uh, A lot of good stuff. Yeah. So a lot of progress. We still have two no-kill states, uh, New Hampshire and Delaware. uh, Both remain no-kill. In 
just as important for them to be able to maintain no-kill as it was for them to get there in the first place. There are three states now that have less than 100 animals as their gap to becoming no-kill. So we're looking there at Vermont, North Dakota, and Rhode Island. All are less than 100 animals away from becoming no-kill. So we're really close. Like Hopefully, those three can be in a race this year to be who the the third state is, or or maybe they'll get added together uh, as three through five. So a lot of really good progress on the, on that front of just getting entire states where every shelter in that state has a 90% or above save rate. I, I think on the challenging side, it's a lot of the, the places that we know have been challenges for a while. And it's not just, I think it's important for people to understand that this is where we rank these based on the volume of animals that are unnecessarily killed in shelters. But some of it is, that these are states with large populations. And so with large populations of people, they have large populations of animals. And so there just ends up being more opportunity for animals to, uh, to be killed. And so we're still looking at some of the same states that have been in the top five that make it in these top five states, make up 50% of the animals that are being killed are Texas, California, North Carolina, Florida, and Alabama. And I, I think those are, are fairly consistent and, and fairly familiar. California and Texas have been the top two for a long time. Again, very populous states. Uh, so I don't want to necessarily point fingers that they're doing poorly, but they're just a lot of animals still in needs at shelters. And therefore, the life-saving gap is fairly large there. And we do some of this so that we know where to focus our resources, so that the industry knows where to focus resources, because it's not that these shelters don't care or that they're not doing their best. It's just that they need help and they need more support from us because of the volumes that they're dealing with. I'm glad you mentioned that because there are a few organizations that have had some pretty dramatic gains in their life saving over the last year. Uh, More than 1,000 animals saved over the previous year. Uh, See if I can remember them. Tangipahoa. Did I say that right? Tangipahoa Parish in Louisiana. Well, hey, gold star for me. Tulsa. Mm Mm-hmm. Siaka, which is in the LA area. Denise Woodside doing great things down there. Great news for them. So they had big life-saving gaps, but made huge progress in 2020. Yeah. So in spite of all the challenges that we talked about uh, that shelters saw in 2021, it was also great to see some of these shelters still continue to make uh, tremendous gains. Uh, And you, you mentioned a couple of them. And it's also been great from a best friend's perspective because we've been working with several of those. They've been them partners for us. Uh, the shelter in Tangipahoa Parish has been a part of our shelter collaborative program that I know you talked about a few months ago on, on the show uh, or on the podcast. And they've been working with Brandywine Valley SPCA, who's been doing a great job of working with them and, and building the programmatic needs to not only save animals' lives in the short term, but to become sustainable and, and being able to do it. Tulsa was a part of our classic embed program. And so we were able to uh, have a couple of our staff members that were down there working with the shelter staff, again, to implement programming and, and policies that would help them uh, build on their life saving and, and grow that. We've also been working a lot. You know, we've got our NKLA and uh, all of our Los Angeles Life Saving Center teams uh, that have been in Los Angeles for years. And they've been doing a lot of work and support around SIACA and LA County uh, to really help those organizations out through various mentorships and CAP programming. And it's been great to see all that come to fruition, to see some of those big gains, even in a year where there are challenges. The growth of no-kill communities continues to be strong, an all-time high now in terms of the total number of communities at 90%. More than half of all shelters in the United States are now, now no-kill which 
just to put that into some perspective, five years ago, that was 22%. Yeah. I mean, it's been really impressive to see. So now that we're at about 52% of all brick and mortar shelters are no kill. That includes municipal shelters, includes private shelters, it includes those with contracts. So we've seen, again, that tremendous progress there. And then we've also seen a growth, you know, as you mentioned, in the communities. And we define that by counties, uh, just so people are clear. 37% of all counties are fully no-kill. And that means that every shelter in those counties are no-kill. Well, for some counties, that's one shelter because they they care of all of it. There's some places, you know, like a Harris County in uh, Texas, which is the Houston area, or L.A. County that have dozens of shelter facilities. So, you know, 37% of counties having every shelter in that county being no-kill is tremendous progress from where, where we've been. And again, just shows that even in tough times, we're still making a lot of progress in the right direction. Going back to what we were saying before about the industry's ability to adapt and meet challenges, I think the fact that we've gotten to the other side of this pandemic in the shape that we're in is really a testament to the growth of the movement. Like it's impacted us, certainly, and it still is. But if this had happened 10 years ago, I think it would have been just devastating. Yeah. It, you know, I think about in my early days in Kansas City uh, with Kansas City Pet Project, and when we were really going through a lot of the early challenges, like there were probably a handful of people who had experience running open admission, no kill facilities. Like you can almost name them on your fingers of the, the people who you could reach out to that had experience dealing with what you're dealing with. And that is like five or six people. And now when you think about it, it's like there are dozens upon dozens of leaders out there in this movement that you can call and get advice for. They're all so open and willing to help with everything. And I just think that that's helping that, almost snowball of momentum, just pick up steam as it's going downhill because there's so many people out there that are willing to help, willing to be sounding boards for ideas and helping innovate new and creative ideas. You know, it's uh, just really impressive how much progress has been made and how many great leaders there are out there now. Sustainability. You mentioned it, just focus on it quickly. The data is showing that when a community reaches 90%, they are very likely to continue sustaining that life-saving. Yes. So we track this every year about the sustainability. And what we've consistently found is that about 94% of shelters, when they become no-kill, 94% of them are able to sustain it the following year. When they don't sustain it, so those 6% who aren't able to sustain, more than half of them get it back in year three. So they may go through a partial downturn due to leadership changes or just struggles or whatever, uh, but they're able to rebound on it. So, you know, with that, you're looking at a full 97% that are really able to sustain no kill. I was surprised. I really thought that with the increase in number of no kill shelters in 2020, um, with the decrease in intake because of the pandemic, I really thought we'd lose a lot of those in 2021. And what we saw was it was over 93% of those communities still maintained no-kill status in 2021, in spite of the increases in intake, in spite of the challenges that they've had with staffing. And so the fact that that didn't move very much at all is really inspiring, you know, that people, once they can figure it out and get the programmatic programmatic stuff in place, uh, that they're able to continue the good work. And a lot of that, I think, comes from the fact that if you're going to be successful and build the programs, you also need a lot of community support for it. 
because you need those, the community to come in to adopt. You need them to be a part of the, the solutions for you. You need them to help you with your managed intake programs. And when that you have that community buy-in and that community support, it just makes it easier to sustain because that community support is not going away. Just more about this effect of COVID. You know, I, I know you and the, the, the data team here at Best Friends, you're doing projections looking into the future all the time. Looking back now, how close were the projections that you did for this time period? Before we knew a pandemic was coming, like in 2019, was there a projection for 2021 without COVID? And how close are we to what we thought we might be at 2021? So it's a little bit crazy that if you looked at 2019, what the projection for 2021 looked like, it looked really similar to what 2021 really looked like uh, because we were forecasting some decreases in intake over time and increases in life-saving over time. So they looked fairly similar to what it was in the projection models. What we couldn't project for was 2020. And now what we can't project for is what this all means, because now you've got, instead of a linear curve line of decrease in, in animals entering shelters and decrease in animals killed in shelters, like now you have this little U-shape that has been formed by 2020, which is creating future projections much more difficult. But if you had gone back in 2018, 2019 and looked at our projections for 2021, they ended up kind of where 2021 ended up being. Uh, It's just not the way we expected to get there. Interesting. Yeah. You know, that bar graph we've used for several years now that that shows the annual number, it's those vertical orange bars with the line going across it. You know, each year it's just gone down and down and down. And this year there is that dip. And it makes me think about 2025, you know, best friends in 2016, drawing that proverbial line in the sand saying, okay, all right, everybody, we're going to set this goal. We're going to do it together. And we're all going to work our butts off to get there by 2025. Is it still achievable? Is 2025 as a number still relevant? Well, 2025 better be relevant because that's my, my, what my job is here. Um, but uh, no, I mean, 2025 is obviously still the goal. Uh, and so what we're dedicated to trying to help the country uh, achieve, you know, I think seeing some of the challenges that are taking place in 2022 coming after 2021, I think there is a reality. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough to get there, but it's also like still inspiring to see places like Tulsa, places like Tangipahoa Parish, places like LA County and Siaka continuing to make that type of progress in, in the right direction, even during a tough pandemic time. And so there are enough of those positive momentum pieces that even when you see some of the struggles, like it still feels like we're headed in the right direction. When you see the, us having more no-kill shelters and more no-kill communities than we've ever had before, three more states that are on the cusp of becoming no-kill, like the movement's still there uh, in spite of some of the challenges that we've seen. And so is it going to be tough? Yeah, absolutely it's going to be. But I think, again, with the volume of leaders and the volume of support there are for making this happen, I just, I can't help but think that we're continuing to build that momentum uh, as we, even as we get closer to it. So can we talk about acquisition and overpopulation you know, in in my time in the business, if you will, uh, overpopulation, I think it's sort of been controversial because it's easy to say it, right? We have an overpopulation problem. We have more pets here than we have people coming in to adopt. So therefore we have an overpopulation problem. But ultimately when you step back and look at the number of animals in shelters and more importantly, the number of people acquiring animals, 
that number, the total number of animals being acquired each year is vastly larger than the number of animals in shelters. So it's not really an overpopulation problem. It's more like an acquisition problem, almost a marketing problem where we need to get people over here that are either not choosing adoption, maybe chose adoption, but are getting denied. uh, And and then they're finding their way to other sources, breeders, whatever that might be. And we don't want that, right? Um, But what do we know about acquisition today? Are we still struggling to get people on the adoption bus? Um, adoptions have never made up more than 35 to 40% of the number of animals that are acquired. People have always largely gotten their pets from other sources. And that 35% or so is grown dramatically as, as an industry. We have been more proactive in promoting adoptions, done a better job marketing our animals, done a better job of opening up adoptions so that more people are eligible to adopt from us and we're not turning them away. And so, yes, there's an opportunity for us to still grow uh, in, in the acquisition market share, if you will. But I think even more than an overpopulation problem, we almost have as much of a distribution problem that you still have areas in the country that struggle with even keeping up with the adoption part of it because they're so overwhelmed with the number of animals that are coming in per capita or per their staffing or per what their physical building structure will allow, that they struggle to get out in front of it. Uh, Where there are other places that are well ahead of the game there. And so I do think that from a distribution perspective, we can do a better job. Again, this is through transport of getting animals dispersed a little more evenly. I think managing intake programs and, and being sure that you're spacing out appropriately how animals can come into the shelter uh, so that you're not overwhelmed all at once and you can be able to manage that process and that flow through a little bit better will help on the, the shelter's end. And then again, better marketing and being sure that we provide maximum customer service for folks when they come in and really help them make the right connection with the type of pet that's going to be best for their home, I think are really big opportunities for us uh, as we move forward. But yeah, it's not an over... There, it might be localized overpopulation issues, but it's not a national overpopulation issue uh, in the way that we talked about it years ago. Well, I feel like a bit of a broken record, but we're going to continue to talk about it. And that is, if you are an agency that adopts out animals and you're putting up roadblocks, you have barriers in place that make it hard for people to qualify to adopt from you because they're not passing whatever arbitrary hoops you put in place you've got to take a look at that because those are the folks who have made the decision that we've been begging them to make for decades, right? They chose adoption. They chose to do the right thing. And then we're just saying, no, sorry, you're not good enough. But guess what? They're still going to go get a pet. So we're just sending people to all the places to get a pet that we've been telling them not to go to. You know, How can we as an industry do better by people who are making the decision to adopt and save a life. It's been the paradox of this industry for decades, right? You know, like we beg people to come adopt and do the responsible thing. And then when they do, we make it as difficult as possible for them sometimes or reject them altogether. And I think that has to solve as an industry, because even if you're a private rescue organization and that little animal is not at risk within your organization, that doesn't mean that that spot that you could then open up for another animal to come in uh, isn't clogging up the system or that by being overly restrictive that you're not casting a kind of a, a black mark on the entire adoption 
of across all adoption organizations of, you know, there was an article in the Washington Post a couple of years ago about how it was harder to adopt a dog than it was to adopt a child. And it was then a little bit tongue in cheek, but if that's what we're sending across as an industry, we've got a really big PR problem that we're creating amongst ourselves for that. I think it's one thing, Brent, for folks to be like, you know, hey, we didn't realize that we were being that restrictive and we didn't understand the long tail effect of our decision to deny adopters. But I think what is disheartening, and this is why we continue to talk about this, is the number of folks that see articles like the one you mentioned and just say, good, it should be really hard. Yeah, I mean, we want to make sure that pets go to the right home. No one is suggesting we send animals out with folks that shouldn't have them, but it's so counterproductive to be doing what we're doing in this area, and it ultimately isn't making pets any safer. Uh, if, if anything, right, it's putting more pets in shelters in jeopardy. So maybe it's just because of the progression that some of these things are more noticeable now than they were before, but it does seem like, you know, boy, there's a real fight internally within animal welfare, maybe even a deepening divide to get this where it needs to be. I think you're totally right, John. And I think it's, um, I I think when you look at some of the things that were probably well-meaning, you know, all of these come from a well-meaning point of view, but we end up trying to solve problems for the one time that it came up where somebody didn't take their pet to a vet like they were supposed to, or ended up having to return a pet because their landlord disapproved of it. And so we end up instituting things like vet reference checks and landlord checks that probably originated from a good, well-meaning place, but they're really restrictive on, you know, home visits are another one. And like, they're really intrusive into people's lives. And I think one one of the things that we're seeing when you get back to the acquisition conversation is that younger people are starting to choose to purchase over, um, they're more likely to purchase from breeders than older demographics are. And when you think about that, what that younger demographic represents, it represents the most culturally diverse uh, in terms of race and sexual preference and uh, sexual identity of any generation in our nation's history. And that level of intrusiveness isn't something that they're they're good with. And so if we're turning away adopters because of that intrusiveness, uh, we really need to think about what we're doing. Well, and it's oversimplifying, probably not even the right way to look at it. But as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, people these days going on and on about younger generations, you know, oh, they're so woke as if like awareness is a negative. But I do think that there is more awareness today from the younger generations about social issues, certain social issues, climate change, equality, whatever. But where are we with this, with our social issue, you know? You're saying the data shows that more younger people are starting to choose to purchase over adopt. Well, it's like we're failing to deliver this issue, animals dying in shelters, to this generation, these younger generations, as a social, as one of the social ills in our country that they can and need to be involved in solving. But of course, as we say, you know, some who are trying to help by adopting, we're just pushing them away. Anyway, Brent, you're so on top of this stuff. Uh, you're looking at numbers constantly. Uh, and not just our data, right, but others. So maybe surprise isn't the right word. But as you look at this in the kind of big data set now for the last year, were there things that you were surprised about? Like, oh, wow, I didn't see that coming. Most of the trends I think we saw coming. You know, the the great thing about having 
other sources of data, you know, with Shelter Animals Count, with what Pet Health has been releasing with their 24 Pet Watch data, all of that has helped us guide of what's happening out there. And I think being able to see some of the data, like I think we knew that adoptions weren't keeping up with intake and that wasn't a surprise, but it's really nice to see like what, how large that gap is. I think the surprise to me were some of the good things. Like I didn't expect our, our no-kill sustainability to maintain basically where it always has been in spite of the challenges that we were seeing. I didn't expect the number of no-kill shelters and no-kill communities to increase uh, in a year when the number of animals killed actually went up. So I think the things that I was most surprised about were all the things on the positive side of things, because I think we can tend to focus on the negative. And I think, you know, as a national organization that really is trying to solve the challenges and the problem of uh, animals unnecessarily dying in shelters, like it's easy to go there to where all the problems and challenges are. And then I think it's all the good things. It's like, oh, well, there's some really good stuff that happened last year. And I wasn't really in tune to all of that. And I think even as a human being and as an organization, uh, I think being, and then as a movement, like taking the time to celebrate those wins, the progress that's happening. And again, going all the way back to like, had this pandemic and all of the stuff that had happened over, I had this happened 10 years ago, we would have seen dramatically different results. And it's because as an industry, as a movement, as a, a career, like the expectations and what we had, had expect of ourselves and of our shelters has changed dramatically. And I think that that in and of itself is a huge win and a huge victory. And I think we've seen that in the numbers for all of it. So our conference is coming up, Best Friends National Conference. We were virtual last year. And we, the year before 2020, we didn't have one because of COVID. Like I love Best Friends and I love our conference and I'm not trying to suggest that our conference is single-handedly responsible for life-saving progress, but I do think not having it in person has had an impact. And not just the Best Friends Conference, but other conferences, trainings, so many things that have helped inspire people in this industry, grow the competency of the field. To not have them has hurt. And uh, it'd be about a month from today that we'll be wrapping up and heading home. I can't wait. It's going to be great to see everyone, uh, just to have everyone back together, sharing ideas, that camaraderie, because I think right now we need it more than ever. And I think it's a really important point, John, because one of the things we also do with the data is then we also look at the people who are connected with best friends and connected with either our network or any of our regional or mission programming work. And what we saw is those organizations that were connected with Best Friends basically were flat year over year uh, in terms of the number of animals that were killed. The shelters that weren't connected with Best Friends had a 15% increase in the number of animals that were killed uh, year over year. I, I say that not as much to promote how great Best Friends is, although I think a lot of the work that we're doing is great, but I think that that power, that connectivity is really, really important. And what we're seeing is the shelters that are struggling the most are the people who are not connected with Best Friends or American Pets Alive or HSUS or the SPCA. They're really out there still kind of working in isolation. And the more that we can work to connect more shelters to the larger movement and to each other so they can help and support each other, the better off we're all going to be as we move forward and as we kind of get closer to 2025. But I think you're right on all these connection points, like conference, I hope to see everybody there because I think they're so important. 
Thank you to Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, Kim Klonge, Tawny Hammond, and Mark Peralta for helping to produce this program. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.